0: Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, we'll begin at verse 26, and a bit of a change, a shortening that happens later on in the week, we'll read 26 through 31. Verses 26 through 31 will be our passage for this morning. Hear now God's holy word, he gives it to us, his people, for our good. Let us attend to its uh, reading, knowing that this is divinely inspired without error, and it will accomplish God's purposes. Luke 23, verse 26. As they led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? The grass withers." And the flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. For your Son's sake. Amen. Around the time of Jesus' day, in that time of the world or that era, there were philosophers, they were called Stoics, and they said that the only way to conquer suffering is to become totally detached from it, to scorn it and totally reject the notion of suffering altogether. The key to the good life, they said, was to arrange your life so that it is nearly impossible to come upon suffering. A Modern manifestation of this might be someone who swears off all friendships, all family ties, goes and lives in a hut on the beach in Hawaii or somewhere, makes himself totally unreachable, enjoys the warm weather, enjoys the sun and says, I don't have a care in the world. The picture they used in that day was a a man standing on a precipice looking out on a rough and stormy sea and He sees a ship out there being tossed to and fro in the midst of a storm, in the midst of the waves, and he thinks to himself, that ship doesn't belong to me, it's not mine, I could not be more detached from it, therefore I don't care, therefore I am not suffering, joining in that suffering at all. The more you detach yourself, the less you care, the less you care, the less you suffer. This, in summary, was what the Stoics would often say. This is also what Buddhism says, Uh, Detach yourself, desire less, care less, and you will suffer less. This is what is called their answer. One of my favorite authors alive today, his name's Anthony Esselin, he points out this is not an answer. And it's not. It's not an answer, it's an evasion. It's an evasion of the unavoidable truth. Because we may dream of being that one. On the beach in Hawaii, we may dream of being that one who stands on the precipice, looking out on the stormy sea without a care in the world. But the truth is that one day we will be in that sea and in that storm. In fact, to be in Christ means that you are already in that storm. You are already in the battle that the Bible calls dying to self. Life in Christ is described with the word that is the opposite of life. It is called a death a dying to self, but it is in dying to self that the life of Jesus Christ, the power of his resurrection, is manifested in us. It's the, the paradoxical nature of the Christian life. Death in us, the life of Jesus, is manifested in us. The power of his resurrection is manifested in us. And yet, while we remind ourselves of all of those things, and we see that in the text this morning, a very important emphasis of our text is the dying to self. We dare not forget that the picture is not us walking side by side with Jesus. The picture is not us carrying our cross, atoning for our own sins, but it is behind Jesus. We're always walking behind the Lord, trusting in his work, seeing that as sufficient for us, and yet remembering the life to which he calls us. The life to which he calls us leads us not to evade suffering... But to embrace it, to rejoice in it, as we saw in Romans chapter 5. To find comfort and joy in the midst of trials. Our main ideas this morning first is a, a picture and a pattern of the Christian life. A picture and a pattern. Secondly, a reason to rejoice. And finally, a reason to weep. A picture and a pattern, a reason to rejoice, a reason to weep. We pick up the account in Luke where we are moving ever closer to the cross, remembering that last week we saw the madness of the crowd overcome the will of Pilate. He says, look, this man is innocent, tries to reason with them. He thinks if he states the facts in front of the crowd, everybody will sort of relent. Maybe they'll be happy if Jesus is just beaten or flogged, but they're not. They say, crucify him. The madness increases when they demand Barabbas in the place of Jesus. And there we see the glorious exchange of the gospel. The perfect and sinless one who is crucified so that the one whom everyone knows is guilty can go free. It's a glorious exchange of the gospel. We rejoice in that picture even though there's a grotesque aspect to it. We rejoice in it because we are Barabbas, aren't we? We're the ones who cannot argue for our own innocence. We're the ones who uh, can't convince anyone that we are righteous or without sin. So the stage is set for Jesus to be crucified. We read that Pilate releases them to the will. He releases Jesus to the will of the people. At the beginning of today's passage, it says they led him away. And some people say, well, maybe this is the, the Roman soldiers who sort of take over from here. But Luke's point is, no, that Jesus is being led away, led to the cross by the religious leaders in Jerusalem and by these crowds that have demanded him and his blood and his life. The madness is continuing to ensue. That's what Luke is pointing out to us. They're so dead set on getting Jesus crucified, they're willing to lead him to the cross themselves. This brings us to the emergence of this character, Simon from Cyrene. He's named in Matthew and Mark's gospel as well, a mysterious figure. We haven't heard of him up to this point, the gospel of Luke. And as we've studied these passages over the course of of church history, we've often said that this is most likely because Jesus being whipped and flogged and the kind of uh, beatings that he was um, exposed to left him exhausted. Roman scourgings were no joke. The whips would be frayed at the end. At the, the end of all of those frays would be connected shards of glass and sharp rocks that would dig into the flesh. So he's dehydrated. He's losing blood. He's exhausted. He's tired. Certainly it's likely that that is part of the account here. Jesus is exhausted. But there's, there's something else. You need to notice that in Luke he doesn't say that that, that Jesus collapse, collapses because of fatigue or anything like that. So it's certainly safe to say that that's part of the story, but Luke is wanting us to notice something else. And there's a picture that is emerging here. In fact, two pictures. The first picture is this. It's a picture of the humiliation of Jesus, the the scorning, and how much he is becoming a symbolic failure in the eyes of the world. When Roman generals would go out and they would conquer new lands, they would come back to a a parade, a, a welcoming home. The non-violent version of that in our world is the ticker tape parade for our sports champions, today's gladiators, right? They're brought back, parade through the city with tens of thousands of people cheering them on. But These Roman generals would come back and in their train would be oftentimes they would bring new servants that they had just conquered. Look at the power and the authority that they're able to put on display in public. Roman crucifixion, on the other hand, was made to strip someone of their dignity, almost their humanity, to lay their honor bare and to make them a public spectacle. And so here is Jesus, who claims to be the king of the Jews, and he is this, it's this parade of shame, almost, as he goes through the city. And then there emerges Simon. Simon. Who becomes, in in essence, in that moment, the only follower of Jesus? How many servants does this king have? He has one servant, and that servant is carrying the instrument of his death. He's becoming a public spectacle, a symbolic failure, an icon of shame and weakness. But it is in the realization of that picture that another picture emerges, and, and this is important for us to see, particularly for our own Christian living. Simon, who carries the cross, becomes a picture of the followers of Jesus. In order to think about this clearly, we remind ourselves of what Jesus said in Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. We pointed out, as we looked at this passage earlier, we pointed out basically two things. And the first is that that passage of Jesus and where it falls in the Gospel of Luke highlights the centrality and the sufficiency of Jesus' work. In chapter 9, he's about to set out to Jerusalem. Chapters 1 through 9 sort of tell the preliminary story Chapters 9 through now, chapter 23, tells the story of how Jesus goes through Galilee and makes his way all the way down to Jerusalem. But as Jesus says that in chapter 9, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. By the time Jesus gets to the cross, who is following him? Who is filling out to the uttermost that call of Jesus? Well, no one. And of course, we go to Peter First of all, who's sort of seen as the, the leader of all of the twelve, the one who always promises that he's never going to leave Jesus, always going to be by his side, and Peter has to this point denied Jesus. So it highlights the centrality and the sufficiency of the work of Jesus Christ, and we rejoice in that. That is the gospel. Our Lord did not veer to the right or to the left; he was faithful to the end. The true and better Adam, as we sang today, the one who came to seek and to save the lost. It's only by his work. It's only by his representation that we can be saved. But there is another truth to notice as well. And that is the life that we are called to in Jesus Christ is a life that calls us to take up our cross. So it highlights the glory of the gospel. It also shows to us the call upon our daily living, which is in the midst of our imperfections, in the midst of the weakness of our flesh, we are called to take up our cross and follow Jesus just like Simon from Cyrene does here. Oftentimes we are able to highlight and embrace and rejoice in the for us aspect of Christ and his work. He suffered for us. Sometimes we're more hesitant to embrace the with him aspect that we're called to suffer with him. That is, to be united to Christ by faith means that we will become conformed to this pattern of living. The picture of Simon, from that emerges a pattern of living. The pattern of the cross. Following Jesus, he goes before us. His work is sufficient, but we follow him. We take up a cross, we die to ourselves. And we embrace the sufficiency of his work for us. For instance, Peter, who would know... All of these things in the experience of his life. He says in 1 Peter chapter 2. If when you do good and suffer for it. You endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. You've been called to suffer and to endure. Because Christ also suffered for you. Leaving you an example. So that you might follow in his steps. In chapter 4 he'll go on to say. We are to share in Christ's sufferings. In Romans chapter 8, Paul is working out the the glory of our redemption. The Holy Spirit, he has said in chapter 5, is poured out into our hearts. We are adopted into the family of God. And then he says in Romans chapter 8, that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may be also glorified with him. Excuse me. Springtime, allergy time, right? Suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. All of these things remind us that suffering is a necessary part of the Christian life. Suffering is a necessary part of the Christian life. It is an essential aspect of union with Christ. To be united to Christ by faith means that we are called to suffer with him. Not in a way that atones for our own sins... You need to keep that picture straight. He suffered for us. We are called in our life with Christ, our union with Christ, to suffer with him. But how? How? In order to understand how, we need to begin to wrap our minds around the picture of suffering with Christ that the scriptures give to us. We got the picture now, Simon from Cyrene, carrying the cross, sort of giving this picture of a follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple of Jesus Christ, following him, carrying the cross. So how do we think about sufferings? We think about the sufferings of this life. Oftentimes we boil it down to the sharpest moments of of our suffering, our mortal condition, intense sickness or unexpected tragedy, the things that come upon us like that, and we're shocked and in dismay. That's a huge part of it. That is a huge part of the suffering of this life. And how we keep the faith in these moments is vital to our walk with the Lord. But it's grander than that. It's wider. It's broader. The way that the scriptures speak about suffering with Christ. Romans 8 tells us that each and every moment, this world, this created order, it's groaning waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. It's waiting to be released from its bondage to decay and sin and death. Each and every moment, there's this latent feeling, this desire of the created order to be set free from the curse of sin. The point is that we live in the tension of that time where Christ has been resurrected we are awaiting His glorious return. He will come to judge the living and the dead. We have been given this glorious life in our Savior. As we're united to Him by faith and the gospel and by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're living in this world that is in bondage to sin and decay. The weakness of our flesh. And so the way that the scriptures talk about our suffering with Christ is broader than just those moments of intense sickness, those unexpected tragedies. It is more apt to say that every temptation that we face, every weakness of our flesh, every time we experience the frustration of this fallen world, in short, every day that we live and we engage in the spiritual battle in which we find ourselves, when we understand that and embrace it, And in the obedience of faith, seek to serve Jesus Christ and seek to glorify God on the path of obedience, following him. When we do that, unto the glory of God, we are suffering with Christ. That's the way that the scriptures talk about suffering with him. Battling our sinful flesh and our sinful nature by the power of the Spirit. Standing up to the temptation of Satan as we humble ourselves by the power of the Spirit and the power of Christ, and the resurrection life that he gives to us. Philippians chapter 1, Paul says that it has been granted to you that you should not only believe in Christ, but suffer for his sake. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, he later will write to Timothy, will be persecuted, they will suffer. Sufferings of this life, the groanings of this created order. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously says, the cross is laid upon every Christian. We all become Simon from Cyrene as we see Jesus going before us. He goes on to say, Bonhoeffer does, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death, he says, like the first apostles who had to leave home and work to follow him, or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world, but it is the same death every time, death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. But the glory of that is that it is in that display of weakness. That that, that picture of Jesus where he becomes a symbol of weakness. The king of the Jews, the king of glory, all of those things that we know about him. He's walking through the city, becoming a symbol of weakness. That it, it is in the church's life of embracing that weakness that the very power of God's resurrection life in Christ is manifested in us. It's not in spite of the weakness, it's not in spite of the suffering, it's through the suffering, it's in the suffering that the power of God is manifested in us. And so Jesus gives them a reason to rejoice, a reason to rejoice as he's making his way through the city and we see these women, uh, many people including women, weeping and wailing for Jesus. We're not told that these are the Disciples of Jesus, the women who partnered with Jesus in his ministry and who helped to support him back in chapter 11, where that was named. We're not told that this is those women. This is probably what's going on here is professional mourners. When someone was publicly executed, there would be this display of mourning and wailing. In other words, what's going on is Jesus' death is being treated like any other death. Honor the the life that is about to end, even if he's being killed as a scoundrel or a criminal. Honor his life with this public mourning. Jesus flips the script because his point is this death is not like any other death. It's different. He says, do not weep. Do not weep for me. There are two other times when Jesus says, do not weep in the Gospel of Luke. Two other times. The first is in chapter 7 when he raises the widow's son from the dead story of resurrection and the other one is in chapter 8 where he raises the daughter of one of the rulers of the synagogue from the dead a story of resurrection those are the two other times Jesus says do not weep so what's going on here he's pointing forward to his resurrection he's anticipating his resurrection and he's saying have the perspective the eternal perspective That I am having and understand that power, the power of God, the power of resurrection life is going to be manifested in and through this suffering. And it is in this statement where Jesus says, do not weep for me. The church finds its very mode of existence to exist in weakness and suffering. And to see that it is in that, that the power of God's resurrection life is manifested in us. And too often we think about it like a, a tennis match. A tennis match is a, a zero-sum game, right? Each and every point, one opponent gets the point and the other doesn't. It's a zero-sum game. And too often we think of that in the Christian life. That is today going to be a day where the suffering wins or the glory Is today going to be about suffering and weakness or or glory and power and resurrection life. And the point of the scriptures is that the power of God is manifested in the weakness and in the sufferings. It's for this that we say as we look forward to the coming of Christ that between now and then there's not going to be any golden age on earth. This created order is always going to be groaning, awaiting the coming of Christ. The church is never going to get to a place where it has this triumphalistic existence. You know, triumphalism is that at some point, it's going to be about uh, our prosperity. It's going to be about what God wants us to experience in this life of, of health and, and wealth and the church abounding and all of those things. no. For all the time until Christ comes again, even as he reigns at the Father's right hand and we rejoice to know his reign and the power of his resurrection life, the church will be called to experience that on earth through their suffering. It's for this reason that Paul says in 2 Corinthians that he is content with weaknesses. He is content with insults. He is content with hardships. He is content with persecutions. He is content with trials. For when he is weak, then he is strong. Too often we boil it down to just a couple of those, right? We don't don't think about weaknesses, the weaknesses of our flesh, the temptations that we face each and every day to, to participate in crude joking or to lust and to act upon that lust. We don't think about the weaknesses of the flesh next to the persecutions and the trials. Paul says it's all of a piece. That is how you suffer with Christ. But the resurrection life of Jesus Christ is manifested in that. Second Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, We have this treasure in jars of clay, our, our existence, our bodies, the clay pots, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies the life of Jesus is manifested as the death is carried around. Some people may say, yeah, but that's Paul. He's an apostle, so his existence, his life is is different than ours, and certainly there are differences, but listen to what he says earlier in that same letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, if we are afflicted, we my ministry and my partners ministry, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort, Corinthians, and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. All of God's people called to this, to rejoice in suffering. Count it all joy, as James says. That's why we experience comfort and joy in the midst of our suffering. And God calls us to do that each and every day, to take up our cross and to follow Jesus, to understand his work is sufficient and central to rejoice in the gospel, but to follow him, to follow him. Rejoice. Do not weep for me, Jesus says. Do not weep for me, for he is on the way to resurrection life. But there is a reason to weep. There is a reason to weep. Rejoice in the blessed eternity But there is a reason to weep, and that is the eternity of judgment. Jesus says, Weep for yourselves, O daughters of Jerusalem. Weep for yourselves and for your children, for the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore, the breasts that never nursed. Jesus is saying that there will come a time of judgment where people will say it will be better that they would never have been born. Now, Jesus is pointing forward to the judgment that was to come upon Jerusalem in 70 AD. The destruction of the temple, Roman armies that enter there. But, in verse 30, he also says that the perspective here is broader. The judgment that came upon Jerusalem in 70 AD was a type. It was a a picture of that final day of judgment, when Jesus Christ will come to judge the living and the dead. In verse 30 he alludes to Hosea chapter 10 and Revelation chapter 6 where the people of the earth are begging for the mountains to fall on them. They want to, to cease to exist because of the reality of judgment that has come. The force of the, the last part of this passage is this. If the call of discipleship is too much, if you say, well, to carry your cross, that, to follow Jesus, that's all too much. If the call of discipleship is too much, What of the guarantee of eternal judgment and condemnation? That which awaits those who reject the Savior, Jesus Christ. That which awaits those who do not repent and believe the gospel. Jesus uses a metaphor of living wood or damp wood and dry wood, alluding to its usefulness in in being burned. Jesus' point is this. if, If I am innocent and we all know that Jesus is innocent, and that is the fate that he saw, that he met, the cross. If Jesus is innocent, what will happen? What will become of those who are not innocent, who are sinful, who are dry wood on the day of judgment? If The call of discipleship is too much. What of the guarantee of eternal judgment and condemnation? So ask yourselves, brothers and sisters, You look at this, you see your Savior going to the cross, you're reminded of the call to follow him, to take up your cross, to follow him, even as we trust in the sufficiency of his work. remind ourselves of the seriousness of the call of those who are made alive in Jesus Christ. And we're reminded that eternity awaits everyone, whether blessed or cursed. So we look at Christ's sufferings, we see the cruciform way of life that we are called to embrace And we say along with Paul, I am content with weakness, I am content with suffering. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Know and be assured that your work for the Lord, your life in him, trusting in him, your engaging in the battle each and every day, it is not in vain. It is not in vain. Suffer with him. Suffer with him. Understanding and trusting in the sufficiency of his work. But don't forget the life that he calls you to. Don't forget the life that he calls you to embrace. A cruciform life, cross-shaped living, to battle sin and temptation and the ever-present weaknesses of this life, to do it in obedience, in the obedience of faith, in service to Christ, to the glory of God. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, Peter says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. We ask that this would also give us a heart for the lost, a heart for the lost, that the Lord would be pleased to call many to himself, that they may be delivered from their sin, that they may be no- made to know the power of Christ's resurrection, becoming like him in his death, as Paul says in Philippians 3. Knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection, becoming like him in his death, sharing in his suffering. Keeping that distinct, always understanding that his work goes before us. We're called to carry our cross as we follow him in the way of obedience in our cruciform life. Let's pray. And so, Heavenly Father and gracious God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for uh, the scriptures that you give to us for our life. We ask that you would empower us to live in such a way. We ask that uh, we would heed the call. Father, even as we trust in the gospel and as we trust in the life that we have through Christ, we pray all these things in his name. Amen. Amen. Let's uh, end together. We'll sing verses one.